0: Welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. Maximize your leadership potential and professional advancement and be inspired. We're delighted to be your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development from a women in business perspective. We share our original research, explore industry and workforce trends and interview female executives, allies, and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things women in business, leadership challenges, talent management, organizational development, change management, and diversity and inclusion.
1: Welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. In this WBIL podcast episode, Angela Schill and I talk with Dr. Holly Richardson about emotional labor, women, and leadership. Dr. Holly Richardson, welcome to the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me today.
1: It is a pleasure to be with you. I'm joined by my co-host, Angela Schill. I'm John Westover. Today, we're talking with Dr. Richardson about emotional labor, women, and leadership. And mixed in there, we'll talk about learning to find and use your voice uh, and some other related topics. I'm super thrilled to have a chance to sit down with you. We've been preparing for this episode for a long time. Um, before we really launch on into the conversation, I just wanted to share Holly's bio with everybody. Dr. Holly Richardson is the editor of Utah Policy, a weekday newsletter where she scours the news and curates the most essential stories about the politics, policies, and people affecting Utah. She also writes regularly for the Deseret News. A former Utah legislator, she holds a master's degree in professional communication and earned a PhD in political science from the University of Utah in 2022. Her dissertation focused on emotional labor and burnout and volunteer team leaders doing international humanitarian work. She and her husband, Greg, are the parents of a very large and diverse family, and she can tell us more about that here in just a minute. Um, anything else, Holly, you'd like to share with us before we dive on in?
2: Sure. I'll explain a little bit about the large and diverse family. So my husband and I actually have a family of 25 children. It's a very large number. <laughs> um, 19 of them are still living, but we adopted 20 of our kids from eight different countries. So we have multi, uh, racial kids, multi-ethnic kids, kids with disabilities, kids that came as sibling groups or were older. Um, And I spent basically 30 years as a stay-at-home mom before I went back to school to get a bachelor's degree and then a master's and then a PhD. Um, But at the same time, one of the things that I did, and I think this is an important conversation for women, um, no matter what their career choices are, is the and, right? I was a mom and I was a mom and a legislator. I was a mom and somebody who... um, was citizen lobbying the Utah legislature to change a law and citizen lobbying just means you're not paid, right? (laughs) It was all volunteer, but, but really that idea that, that the motherhood role was really important for me, but it was not the only thing about me, still not the only thing about me. So I'm happy to have a conversation today.
0: That is fascinating. fascinating. Um, I just have a question really quickly, just diving right in. I'm fascinated with the dissertation that you wrote, and we might need to go back and forth here with your story. But hearing this concept of emotional labor, I'm wondering, could you define that for us as you see it and then how it plays into the yeah. roles that you've you've taken on in your life, mother and all of the other
2: Yeah. um, So, so academically, and you probably know this being in the academic world, sometimes have different definitions than maybe in the popular media. So emotional labor in academia is really the work that we do in exchange for something of value, um, that, that for requires us to, um, Present a certain emotional front. So, for example, the a really easy thing to understand this is the retail worker on Black Friday, right? So they they're forward facing the, to the customers. They need to be cheerful. They need to be you know uh, helpful no matter what the circumstances, right? So that that actually is. Um, emotional labor. So there's actually two types. One is um, considered superficial, and that is you're very aware that you're trying to mask your felt emotion. Um, so you feel angry and annoyed, but you're trying to portray that you're feeling you know, friendly and outgoing. Um, the other one, though, is deep emotional labor. And that one is you are trying to convince yourself that your initial emotional response or even your longer emotional response is not correct. And you need to change it to fit the circumstance. So for example, I'll give you an example in my own life. When my first daughter was born, she was my second child, my first daughter. um, She had significant disabilities. And I thought that what I should feel was grateful and blessed that I had a child with disabilities because people were saying to me, well, you must be a special parent, right? Because God only gives special kids to special parents. Well, I didn't want to feel special. I wanted to feel normal and I didn't want to feel singled out, right? but I was telling myself I needed to change my emotional state. So what has happened in the popular press is that people kind of hooked on to this idea, latched onto this idea of emotional labor, and they have now kind of wrapped everything that uh, other people have talked about in other areas. So for example, invisible labor, the invisible labor that uh, usually women will do, things like keeping track of kids' birthdays, keeping tracks of the doctor's appointments and the vet appointments and those types of things. That's also called invisible labor. Sometimes it's called emotional work, which is, again, in academia, different than emotional labor, but it's, it's that really unseen part Um, so there's really two different things that invisible labor that really is talked about more in the popular press is emotional labor, but emotional labor is this idea of making your emotions fit the situation. So when I looked at this, um, in my dissertation, one of the reasons I looked at it is because I have been a team leader for volunteer organizations. I've done international humanitarian work since 2006, and, and this is what I saw. So it was super fascinating to me you've got a team leader who's taking this group of volunteers and I'm talking about small organizations. So everybody's a volunteer, the team leader is a volunteer. Um, and you're going internationally and this may be the first time that anybody maybe has ever left Utah, maybe the first time they've ever seen extreme poverty. And so you've got a team leader who has to manage their own emotional state. They have to interface with people on the ground, maybe they're you know, local contacts, but they also have to help manage or help, right. The volunteers who may be experiencing some really big emotions and, and you can't sit there as a team leader and go, oh my gosh, that's horrible, right. You can't do that. And you can't say, oh my gosh, I can't believe these volunteers. You can't do that. Right. And so it's, it, we actually know through other research, not mine, but, um, through other research that that it takes a toll right That there's an emotional cost that there's uh it leads to more burnout it makes you tired um it can even deplete your immune system when you're when you're really spending so much energy trying to manage all of this emotional stuff so i i think burnout is super interesting so i've i've heard some popular view on burnout that it is just a a matter of unmet expectations or misaligned expectations, but I don't agree with that actually. I think the academic research on burnout is pretty specific and and pretty well-documented that that there can be lots of components. And one of the things that that I um, talked about in my dissertation, but I also have felt in my own life, there's lots of instances where you have plenty of passion. You're not tired of doing what you're doing, but it has taken a toll, right? So for example, people are not really looking at how parents burn out that that's an area of research that hasn't really been tapped into. So, except for parents of children with disabilities, and then there's a high rate of burnout, right? And what does that mean if you burn out as a parent that can have really, um, impactful consequences, right? So you may have a parent who, um, one of the symptoms of burnout is you you lose your ability to care. Well, you don't want to have that happen as a parent, right? Um, you can be an entrepreneur who's starting their own business. You cannot say, you know what, I'm I'm burning out. I think I'm gonna just take a month off. You can't do that, right? So you have to, you have to learn um how to also manage that, right? While the rest of the world is still spinning around you. And certainly as a parent, that's what happens.
0: I, I I've got so many thoughts going on right now. I've done a lot of research <laughs> in this area that you're talking about in terms of especially right now, parents with disabilities, mm-hmm. parents with children who have disabilities. I'm wondering when it comes to burnout, when it comes to this emotional labor that you've researched and studied in academia, how have, how has that been in your path? How has that impacted you and what have you done
2: to, to deal with that? If you have. Faced yeah,
0: burnout?
2: look, I, <clears throat> I approached academia, um, As a non-traditional student, right, I was uh, 49 when I started down the path to get a bachelor's. I had an associate degree, but so 51 at a bachelor's, 53 at a master's, and 57 when I got my PhD. Um, So I have a lot of life experience under my belt. And one of the things that I was interested in is this concept of burnout and, and how we address it. So burnout also gets into the popular press, right. And we hear about manicures and pedicures and get a massage. And so, so I will tell you, I will tell you, I went and looked, um, there is no research (laughs) that shows that getting a pedicure actually helps alleviate burnout. So, um, I, I find that that was somewhat amusing, right. But, but there are, but there are research, um, articles and, um, Uh, different things that you can find that actually do have some really solid evidence behind them. And so one of the things that happened when I was a mom was that I was starting to feel really overwhelmed. I I was not regretting having so many little kids, but there were days where it was absolutely overwhelming. Right. And just so fatiguing. I mean, I had, I had multiple kids in wheelchairs. I had multiple kids in diapers and, um, you know, my oldest, we went on a trip one time, um, because we had a house fire and we were homeless. Actually. Um, we had 20 kids at home and my oldest didn't drive. (laughs) He was 17, but he wasn't a driver. And we had to be out of our house for a long time. And it was just so stressful, but, but one of the things that I learned kind of through trial and error, and then to my pleasant surprise found it backed up on academia is that there are some really deep things. And so I I mentioned before, you've got this concept of surface self-care and deep self-care. I mean, surface emotional labor and deep emotional labor. And so I think that there's surface emotional self-care and there's surface, or there's deep self-care, right? And And I think what that looks like is, for example, you may spend a weekend binging on Netflix, And that may be okay, right? For a weekend. But if you do it all the time, it's not that productive and it doesn't really fill your soul, right? You can eat a donut, maybe okay. um, But if you eat that for your diet all the time, it's not going to be healthy for you. So those are the surface types of things. And that's where I think you can put like getting a massage, which I love massages and getting a pedicure also I love. But when you're looking at the deeper things for self-care, it's things like mindfulness and meditation. It's things like breath work. It's things like journaling for healing, which for me, I'm a writer. And so it's a very powerful mechanism for me to find, you know, I process through writing. Um, but there's some really great research. It started with uh, Dr. James Pennebaker in the seventies. And, and he just started uh, asking college students to spend, I think it was 25 minutes, four times in one week, writing about a traumatic event in their life and maybe what they had learned from it. And then of course the control group, they just spent 25 minutes writing. And, and what was so interesting is not only did they have immediate impacts, but those impacts on well-being and the ability to see, you know, the world in, in more favorable ways, they lasted months. Um, six months down the road, they're still finding benefits, right? after just four days of writing twenty five minutes a day. So I'm a big fan of that gratitude, um and it's a practice, right? It's not just whipping off. I'm grateful for, you know, food in my house and you know, heat. um but trying to get more into those types of things there's and there's other other things too, right? Some practices of exercise for some people i'm that's not high on my bucket list. <laughs> so. Um, but, but there's some really um, helpful things that really get to that. And, and I think you have to have as a mom, especially raising a mom who who of kids who had a variety of difficulties or or disabilities and not all of them did. Right. But we, we certainly had our times, but I, I couldn't get so enmeshed in what was going on with the kids that, that my, soul identity was wrapped up in being a mom of kids with disabilities, right? I needed, I needed something, um, to help me feel like I was still me. Um, and, and even trying to figure out who that is, right. And to have enough, um, water in the well, so to speak, that I could help take care of the kids. And then as they, have as they've gotten older, right. I mean, that has those practices got me through uh the phd program so so i like to tell people um uh, it was really hard for me actually the phd um classes were very different than what i had been used to um and they actually made me cry and it was the first time since nursing school that i had cried over school right <laughs> You're not (laughs) alone, right? I mean, I knew that. I recognized that after I started talking to to colleagues that were in the classes too. I I just had no idea that it was going to be that much of a stretch, and it was good, and I'm glad that I did it. But I also had these practices to make sure that I was emotionally grounded and. I mean, you know, the thing that people say all the time, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on before you help the person next to you. But I had to have water in my well to be able to help take care of all of these people around me. And whether it was at home with my family or on a trip leading people, um, I started leading teams working with refugees. And so we're seeing people in really dire situations. I had to go in from a position of, I've got emotional reserves. I can go in and I can handle this, right? Yeah. Um, Even though that doesn't, I mean, I'm still impacted by what I see and the stories that I hear, but I had to have that emotional resilience, I guess, um, built up before I took off. So look, I'll just say I've had a really nonlinear career path. And in fact, the reality is, even though I've done lots of different things, including being a legislator, um, I have not, I'm, I'm really in some ways at the beginning of my career and I'm 58 years old. And, and what does that look like? Right. And, and, and I think that there's a lot of women in Utah, especially that try and figure out how, like, how do you mesh it all together? How do you be a mom and somebody in the workforce, or how do you be a mom for a while and then reenter the workforce? And, and I think one of the things that the Lieutenant governor has done, Deidre Henderson in Utah um, with her returnship program, she recognizes that, right. That that's a, that's a thing that, that you've got people who step away from, you know, a paid work environment for a while, and then they're trying to get back in. And it could be fan, it could be kids. It could be a divorce. It could be a disability, right? It could be some, a, a variety of reasons why you're gonna change. It could be a pandemic, right? Who knows, <laughs> um, but you, you've got this. I, I see this in my kids, my young adult children. They think they have to have everything figured out when they're 25, right? Or 22. And, and I still don't have everything figured out. I will tell you that until, until, literally until two weeks before I applied to the PhD program, I never considered getting a PhD. And then it was, well, I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> right? And And so I applied and I got in and that was not like, that was never part of my plan. It was not part of my five-year plan. It was not part of a 10-year plan, right? And now that I have it, the most common question I get is, "What are you, now? well, now what are you going to do? And my answer is, I don't know yet, right? I, I really enjoy writing. I really enjoy doing Utah Policy as a newsletter. Um, That's been uh fun for me, right? But I also really love this humanitarian thing. And is there a way to mesh the two? And I don't know yet, but I'm looking, right? So you don't have to have all the answers when you're 25. <laughs>
1: My oldest Holly is nineteen. Um, I have six children and uh, she's our oldest. She feels like she has to have everything figured out and she's felt that way for a few years now. So yeah, there is something to that. And and I I tell her all the time, um, I I don't know what I'm doing. Like my life today looks so much different than I thought it would look like. Yeah. Um, you know, five, ten years ago. And in many ways it's, you know, a, far better than I could have hoped for. In other ways, it's just very different than what I thought it would be. Um, And helping people grow into and be comfortable with that, I think is is a really important part of the process. You've you've talked at length about um, the emotional labor piece. Now, one of the bullets you sent us when we were prepping for this episode was around saying yes, as many times as you can. And I can't help but contrast that with this message of, you know, self-care and, and watching out for burnout and, and yep. keeping track of the emotional labor, because if you're always saying yes, you know, then that can lead to burnout. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that? What do you mean by saying yes, as many times as you yeah. can? And how do you balance that with self-care and, and balancing your load and making sure that you're not setting yourself up for failure and burnout?
2: You know, it's a super good question and it's really countercultural, right? Because we've talked a lot about setting healthy boundaries and I totally agree with that. But I also found that one of the things that really helped me um just as the years progressed was that I had said yes to opportunities to for example, go on a radio show or go on a TV show or um you know to help out in and and a lot of my areas political so to help out on a political campaign and and i think for me part of the saying yes was that it was time bound so it was not this is not an open-ended thing i'm gonna i'm not saying yes to the next two years of you know every week or every day um i said yes to serving on boards um i served on the governor's uh, council for people with disabilities for four years and then Um, when that term ended, I was really busy with my family and I didn't, I I didn't stay for a second term when I served on the state records committee, I said yes to that. When I hit my four-year mark, I said yes to a second term. And then I rotated off because you're term limited there. Um, so, so I think part of it is knowing not, not only what your bandwidth is, but, but where, like, where can you say yes? And I, and I tried to do that at home too, because I was a mom who was saying no all the time. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't wear that. And <clears throat> like the kids, you know, they want to go outside and play in the snow and they want to wear bare feet and shorts. I was like you can't do that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, you can't pick the worms up off the sidewalk and you can't eat them. I'm sorry. Right. So my husband actually encouraged me to say yes more often, if I could find ways to say yes. And so I started looking to find ways to say yes to the kids, but also to find ways to say yes to me. And one of the things that I've seen over and over and over and over with women that I interact with is they have said no to themselves for years. And by the time their kids are grown, they don't have any idea who they are anymore. They feel like, and this is what I've even in classes that I've taught, right? I've asked how many of you have goals for yourself and I can maybe get 30% of the women say they have goals for themselves. They have goals for their kids. They have goals for their family. They have goals for their marriage. They don't have goals for themselves, right? They've lost that ability or forgotten maybe that um, how to identify what's important to them. And so I think that's part of it, right? So I absolutely have said no to serving in the PTA and um, other things, but I've said yes to opportunities where it was expanding something I was interested in, an opportunity to teach, an opportunity to speak, those types of things. So I guess that that's kind of how the boundaries kind of play out um but yeah i agree it's countercultural right because sometimes we say yes to too many things um and then we have to m- maybe back out or you know we're we're just doing too much also i will say that the more you do um the more capable you become <laughs> so so wow well,
1: yeah that's uh, helpful and again i'm you know i'm i'm a guy i'm obviously a little in a different space in, in as part of this conversation but I, I found the same thing you know in my own life that when i i have to balance it and i you know sometimes i do overcommit and um but when, i find that when i try to find ways to say yes and try to interact with people in meaningful ways often in ways that are stretching me or putting me out of my comfort zone um it often if if not dare i say you know usually creates future opportunities that I had never even previously considered. Um, so not only do I, you know, experience some personal growth through saying yes and putting myself in that situation, but usually, you know, sometimes years down the road, uh,
2: yeah.
1: it, it ends up resulting in some other yeah. thing that I I could have never thought about or planned for previously. Yeah. Um, and so it, it is powerful, but you always have to balance it. And, and it can be really easy to to you find do. yourself in a and, situation where where you are completely underwater.
2: And and I'll give you another example, right? Saying yes doesn't always mean that you have to say yes to every single aspect of what potentially could be done. So, for example, I have a daughter who's getting ready to have a baby. I just did a baby shower for her last week. Well, I went to a baby shower like 3 weeks ago and there were balloon arches and homemade food and like I the signs in the yard, I did a bouquet of balloons, store-bought cookies, and some matching plates, right? <laughs> and, and there was a little twinge of, I wonder if there could be more, but she thought it was great. I thought it was great. I didn't kill myself saying, oh my gosh, everything has to be done, you know, totally homemade. And And it took me a while to get over that part of it, right? So you can say yes to things that that maybe you know other people might do it a different way than you do it but and that's okay because there can be many ways to do it and and i think one of my one of my favorite stories that i've heard re- recently is somebody who was like well, can, this is pre-pandemic, right? Is there a way to record this class? And they're trying to figure out, you know, all the equipment they might need. And, you know, do they have to talk to the tech people at the university? All they really needed was somebody in the class to hold up their cell phone and record it, right? it's like, (laughs) oh, sometimes we overcomplicate it. Maybe we don't need to do that, right? (laughs) But I agree, right? I have lots of connections now that I made just over a series of years, by saying yes here and there, and sometimes there were, you know, large commitments, but for a short period of time, um, the legislative session is only six weeks. You know, so <laughs> you can commit to six weeks. So, anyway, yeah, I agree with that.
0: I just have a, I have a, a question connected to that a little bit. I think, which is looking at, you've had a really fascinating, inspiring path that's been very diverse, and as a woman walking into leadership roles and you've mentioned, you know, teaching women that have kind of learned some self-denial or at least forgotten mm-hmm. uh, their goals and things like this. And I wonder what it's been like for you is obviously to say yes to things. There's, there's a portion of this, of stretching yourself, as John mentioned, stepping out of your comfort zone where you have to find your voice. Yeah. And I'm curious how that's been for you, how you have found you've, you've been a voice for you're talking about working with refugees and and you know lobbying for people with disabilities and representing all these different groups that need that support how has that been for you what has that path been
2: like and um that's a really great question and thank you for asking it I, I i think one of the things that people assume about me that's not correct is that i'm never scared i'm always scared um i do it anyway right i have imposter syndrome all the time right the whole well who am i to say this or do this well if not me who right And, and I think one of the things that I've been able to do is, is to give voice to people who, who maybe, maybe they're not being heard, right? Maybe they're, maybe they don't have access to the same ways. Like the refugees that, that I try to write about when I share some of their stories, they don't have access to Western media. Um, But, but that's one thing. I I think I started as a blogger, a political blogger um, in 2008, back when blogs were, um, newer and, and I just started writing about what I saw. And then I started writing about what I thought about what I saw with the political process. And, and when I got feedback, the first time, (laughs) the first time I got really negative feedback, I cried not, not anymore. Right. I mean, you get used to it and you adapt and you also learned to hone your arguments, right? If you're all over the place, um, you, you're not going to be cohesive, right. Or there, you're going to have people who are going to poke holes in your argument and you you become better at storytelling, the more you practice. And it's like anything, anything you do over and over and over, you're going to become better at. So, so that's why I encourage people to just start. There's actually a book called, um, feel the fear and do it anyway. Right. I I think if we, if we are trying to tell ourselves, well, we're going to wait until we're not afraid that day will never come. Right. Because there's always something else. Um, that might happen. I will tell you this. I rarely read the comments um, in the the pieces that I write online because most of them don't have productive information to give me, right? And um, if people take the time to tell me personally, or to, you know, to maybe even email me, I'll take things under consideration. But I think that's Brene Brown saying, you know, don't take, basically don't take uh, input from people in the cheap seats, right? Are they in the arena with you? Or are they fighting the fight with you? Um, hmm. Right. Those types of things, but, but really it's, whether you want to write, or you want to speak, or you want to do video, or you want to do TikTok, I don't do TikTok. My kids tell me I'm too old to learn it. I don't even know, but (laughs) right. But I know that's where my teenager gets her news, right? She's 19, almost 19. She gets her news on TikTok, right? But wherever it is, you can figure out how to put your message out there. And, and again, the more you do it, the better you'll get at it and you'll be able to refine it and, and narrow it and, I will say, after having written for the newspaper now for a number of years, and I'm a very avid Twitter user, um, it's hard for me to write long form. I write short form. (laughs) (laughs) So a dissertation was really a stretch. (laughs) You know, I think you look for things, what, like not everybody has to be interested in every single issue. I don't, I don't really know a lot about the banking industry. So you know we just had in the news recently we had a bank collapse i don't i barely know the surface stuff about it right i have the high level stuff but if you want to talk about refugee policy i can talk your ear off all day long right because i super care about that um and so i think really you don't have to be all things to all people you can't be um So if there's an area that really floats your boat, get involved in that area. And it can be your local library. It can be your local PTA. It can be your local city, right? You want to go to city council meetings. You want to go to the planning commission. You want to work on the um, unsheltered homeless issues and affordable housing. Like all of the, it doesn't matter what the issue is. There's as many issues I think as there are people and, and you can be the person, you can become the person who says, you know, I really care about this issue. I really care that we don't have more women in positions of leadership. And so I'm going to, you know, start asking people to run for office. I'm going to ask for people to do this, right? Women, women are different than men. When we decide to run for political office, generally speaking, men don't need to be asked most of the time they make that decision on their own, but women often need to have somebody tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey, I think you would be good at this. And not only one time, like three or four times have people say, no, I really think that you would be good at this. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's something that you can do where you're using your voice if you don't want to run and that's okay i get that but to go to people and say you know what you would really be great have you ever thought about running for city council have you ever thought about running for student government have you ever thought about running for the state legislature right those types of things there's so many ways yeah
1: yeah Holly, this has just been a really great conversation. I know at the time we need to let you go here in just a minute, but before we wrap things up, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can get connected with you, where they can find uh, more about your your articles in the Deseret News. Perhaps they want to look at your dissertation. Where can they find that? And then give us the final word on the topic for today.
2: Sure. So um, you can find my dissertation on ProQuest, <laughs> right? Um, my, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter as, um, LinkedIn is Holly Richardson, but Twitter is Holly on the Hill. It's been that for a long time and, um, utapolicy.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. It, it will give you a good overview. I think of what the news is going on both, um, locally and nationally. And then look, I just, my last word, I think is to say, I, I want to encourage people to say, don't put your own self in a box, Right don't be the reason that you don't take a step forward right you're you've got lots of things that define you and um you may think that one role is the only role but that is never the case human beings are complex and we're wonderful and have lots of different ways to share our abilities and our talents and i think the world needs more people who are willing to step out there and say hey I've got stuff to offer and I can do it beyond the walls of my own home, even while my full-time focus is my family. And then after that, you've got plenty of opportunity. My grandmother is 101. She's still alive. I'm not yet 60. I think I probably have a good at least 30 more years. So, <laughs> so we'll see how we'll see how that goes, right? But um I, I think everybody has the ability to make a really big impact in this world. Even if it doesn't feel like it, that narrow corner of where you've made that impact, it's made a difference to that person. And that's what really matters.
1: Well said, Holly, it has been a real pleasure. I again, encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Holly can do for you. Check out her writing uh, and connect with her. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Women in Business Impact Lab podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.